All right. Welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. I'm Nick here with Steve and also Comrade Levi. Um, we're doing a lot of projects with Comrade Levi lately, so that's great. Um, but we are picking back up on our series on Palestine, Zionism, and Empire. So Steve is going to take us through most of today's topic today. Um, we're going to be really looking at kind of that transition period, I guess you could call it, when Britain really starts to play a leading role from the imperial protector perspective within the the mandate that we'll get into a little bit more. Before we do that, I'll give a little bit of an introduction just to kind of remind everybody what Levi took us through last time. So really, I mean, if you guys remember, what we did was we concluded our last history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict at the end of the First World War from the perspective of Jews, Zionists, and Palestinians. The Soviets, after their victorious revolution, published the Sykes-Picot Agreement. This, combined with the Balfour Declaration, led Palestinians and sympathetic Arabs to feel utterly betrayed by their erstwhile British allies in spite of the McMahon-Hussein correspondence. On the other hand, Zionists felt their own goal of a Jewish state in the land of Palestine was ascendant. Ultimately, it fell to the body of the High Commissioner for Palestine to appease Zionists, Arabs, and the Crown by making peace in the Palestinian Mandate. So, with that, Stevie, I'll turn it over to you and we'll get into it. Yeah, and just to start off, I'll, I will mention that most of what I've got here is taken from a book by a British historian called John Newsinger. You know, it, it's similar to the People's History of the U.S. It, it's called the People. I think it's the People's History of the Empire. So it's told. It's definitely a left-wing telling of this, but it's also. I, I think at times it tries to tell more the story of the of the Palestinian people and the effects on them. And and really, that'll get more into my into the second part. Today's kind of a, a lead into. You know, again, we we go up to about the mandate and then um, stop at around 1929. But um, yeah, we'll get into it now. So initially, the British interest in Palestine was strategic and of considerable importance in protecting the British position in Egypt. Once the Allied powers defeated the Central Powers, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. The British believed control of Palestine bolstered their dominance in the Middle East, but there was little economic interest in the territory. In October 1918, Leo Emery, who was an intelligence officer and war cabinet secretary for Lloyd George, noted... Strategically, Palestine and Egypt go together. Palestine was a necessary buffer to the Suez Canal, and geographically, practically the center of the British Empire. It is probably unsurprising that the strategic interest intersected with the ambitions of the Zionist movement that wanted to establish a Jewish state in Palestine and was actively seeking an imperial sponsor. The British viewed the potential Zionist partnership as a way to strengthen their claim to Palestine. It could help them prevent a French claim to Palestine and Zionist settlements would introduce a loyal and dependent population in the Middle East, effectively a Jewish Ulster. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because that's more or less the way that the United States still articulates the position of Israel as this democracy in the Middle East. I mean, there's no material reason beyond military supremacy that the United States continues to have such a extreme value over the land of Israel or Palestine. Yeah, but I mean, that is the material reason, right? Just because like there's no oil to extract there, or maybe oil that they've found to extract there quite yet, um, doesn't mean <laughs> that it isn't just kind of another cog in the imperial machine, which is all predicated upon dominating this region, right? Of course. I just mean there's no like warm water port, there's no oil, there's no like mineral extraction reason. 100%. It is purely ideological and physical dominance of the territory. Yeah, and it's just so funny that Steve mentioned the French. And it's just time and time again, 
you know, we see basically this as like a grand game between imperial powers. I mean, less so now because the U.S. is the hegemon. But, you know, in the time of in, in this time in particular, you have a lot of imperial powers vying for hegemony. Right. And everybody else that's not there is just a pawn. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to I was just going to say. We did we did a little bit about Ulster. We mentioned it. I know when we did the one of the uh, Taste of Empire episodes, but you know we'll obviously do more on that. But you know that's effectively the British stronghold in Northern Ireland. So, yeah, cool. So as we covered previously, political Zionism was always looking for imperial assistance in their ambition of occupying Palestine. This was due to the knowledge that the weakness of the settlement would always require an imperial protector, and from the position that the Middle East occupied in the struggle between the rival empires. Prior to the First World War, the Ottoman Empire seemed a suitable sponsor, and both David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Sharat had roots in the culture. With Ben-Gurion studying law in Istanbul and desired to be elected to the Turkish parliament, and Sharat serving as a volunteer officer in the Ottoman army. However, the international Zionist movement was more concerned with persuading a European power to pressure the Turks into being more sympathetic. This position meant developing relationships with rival European empires, but also with openly anti-Semitic governments and politicians. Historian R. Sharif notes that Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, regarded the anti-Semites as, the, as his most dependable friends and allies. Rather than attack and denounce anti-Semitism, Herzl declared that the anti-Semites will be our most dependable friends. The anti-Semitic countries are allies. So I think Levi talked a little bit about this last time, but... um. You know, I, I think, and I think I'll get into it in a second, but their interests kind of came together, right? These people wanted Jewish, the Jewish people of their countries out and the Zionists were, would welcome them into Palestine. So, But it's the sort of two sides of the same coin. Yeah. That they both actually are defining the Jew in very similar ways. Yeah. I was going to say just, it mirrors what we talked about in one of our article reading episodes, how the far right now is embracing the Zionist project, right? Like you've got Netanyahu going and making friends with Orban, despite, you know, explicit anti-Semitic rhetoric. But again, they can kind of, I guess, justify that on the basis of like, well, they just don't want them here. And we, we, you know, they don't want Jews in Hungary and we want the Jews in Israel, right? So you can still kind of it, it, when it's about a national identity, it doesn't matter as much, right? Especially when you're talking about alliances on a world scale along nationalist lines and things like that, right? So again, it's just a phenomenon that because this contradiction is not resolved at all, it's going to continue to kind of bubble up, right? Especially when we're talking about nationalism in this way from the far right perspective. And we'll get into it more, but this is really foundational to the state of Israel. You can't have a state of Israel unless there is anti-Semitism. You have to have a reason for European Jewry to want to be in Israel. Yep. Okay. So the Zionists argued there was no place for Jews in Russia, Germany, France, Britain, or the US. And this was reciprocated by the anti-Semites in those countries. And they could cooperate on the basis of the shared understanding. Herzl had tried to persuade both Joseph Chamberlain, who was the colonial secretary, and Cecil Rhodes, as Nick would say, friend of the podcast, <laughs> to help to help with settlement projects. Chamberlain had offered land in East Africa, known as the Uganda Project, but the land was actually in Kenya. And this was a way to attach Zionism to the British Empire rather than a serious alternative to Palestine. 
Perhaps more importantly, though, British historian John Newsinger notes that this demonstrates the extent to which Zionism was a European settler project, a child of Western imperialism that showed no real concern for the inhabitants of the territory to be settled, which I think is, is key to everything we're doing here, right? And this would be proven over the succeeding years and today. Levi, I'm sure you've probably heard it more than we have on some level, but I guess this is kind of something I always have in my head when it comes to this idea of like self-determination, right? And like people talk about like, well, you know, this is the Jewish people kind of exercising self-determination with respect to a country and everything like that. And I know there's a lot of baggage tied into that with respect to, you know, we had the conversation we had in terms of, is this a national identity or is it a religious identity that morphed in different ways over the years? So I guess, I don't know, how, how do you look at that with respect to it, how this clearly was, as Steve is saying here, a Western sponsored project? Because I think, again, our main, one of our main arguments is that it has been and continues to this day to be a Western backed project that really has nothing to do with self-determination. As I mentioned earlier about like people are just pawns and kind of like the Imperial game, right? Right. It's this sort of that language of self-determination really draws in a lot of sympathy. And it sort of reminds me of the history of the combination of black or early proto, you call it proto, you might just call it regular black nationalism uh, and Zionism actually had a lot in common in the early years. Um, for example, Marcus Garvey was a big supporter in the early years of the Zionist movement uh, because he believed it was articulated as a self-determination right to national self-sufficiency. Um, what he either didn't articulate or didn't see was just how white the Jewish project really was, uh, that these were Europeans that had assimilated rather than the Jews of Exodus. These were not others. Uh, these were really European subjects looking to create a European state in the Middle East, rather than Marcus Garvey's project, which was much more uh, unique. Oh. So I, I don't know if that directly answers your question, but it's just the idea that th that language was well known and being articulated even on the executive level of the United States under Woodrow Wilson. So it was something that could be latched onto. I, and even to get to a, a further point, I mean, this was the language used in the Vietnamese revolutionary movement as well. I mean, it was known as being powerful language, even if it wasn't supported by the actual imperial powers that were speaking it. Yeah, no, and I guess I probably framed that wrong. I didn't really want to frame it as much of a question as much as like a talking point, just because I think this whole idea of self-determination, et cetera, et cetera, you just have to be really cognizant of the entire context, right? I mean, like Vietnamese coming out of, you know, French colonialism is very different. African slaves coming out of, you know, generational chattel slavery, that's very different than I think what this is. But, you know, you, the right will always try to co-op truly revolutionary language to kind of, again, manufacture consent for projects and things like that as well, and kind of obfuscate and deflect real criticisms, real left-wing criticisms, you know? Yeah, and just to build on that, I think that there's a history that we could imagine that obviously didn't occur where Zionism is actually more open and capable of articulating a state in Palestine that is available to the Arab population that would actually be able to create a better world. Rather, it's articulated, as you said, from a right-wing perspective that's more exclusive, that becomes 
incredibly problematic. And that's sort of what I was trying to say with the last history on nationalism, that nationalism as a concept is not predicated to be either left or right wing. It's just a tool for the creation of movements. Right. So the British decision to embrace Zionism, though, would be the situation that confronted the empire in 1917. The British had concluded the Sykes-Picot Agreement with the French on the division of the Ottoman Empire. However, at the same time, they had also signed the Hussein-McMahon Correspondence promising the Arab self-governance, which Nick covered at the start. The incompatibility of these two agreements was compounded by the Balfour Declaration promising the Zionists a natural home in Palestine. The British saw this as a way of outmaneuvering the French and ensuring Palestine fell into British hands. There was also concern that Germany would announce support of Zionism, and in the eyes of most Zionists, Germany was more attractive at the time due to Britain's alliance with Tsarist Russia. The Russian government had historically, and was then, treating its Jewish subjects as the enemy within, and deported over three million Jews while the Tsar fanned the flames of the pogroms. Lloyd George noted, The German general staff urged in early 1916 the advantages of promising Jewish restoration to Palestine. At any moment, the Allies might have forestalled in offering this supreme bid. In fact, in September 1917, the German government was making very serious efforts to capture the Zionist movement. So Britain believed that by embracing Zionism, they would rally Russian Jewry to their cause. The reality was that the Zionist movement did not have the influence that Britain hoped. Chaim Wiseman, with whom the British were negotiating, had simply elected himself with the authority from no one as a representative of the Jewish people. So there's actually an interesting short history here. So at the time, the leadership of Zionism was between Heisman and Harvard-trained Kentucky lawyer named Louis Brandeis. Uh, So Brandeis had made a reputation for himself at the turn of the century as the people's lawyer by taking on a number of high-profile cases against trusts, monopolies, and the power of banks on behalf of labor unions. So though he was an assimilated secular Jew in the United States, he embraced Zionism when approached by world Zionist representatives in 1911 and became head of the American Zion operation in 1914. His vision for Israel, though, reflected what he believed was the American ideal, which was unrestricted immigration, a firm commitment to individual freedoms, coupled with free market development from international capital, uh, meaning absolutely anybody with money might invest in the development of the means of production, with technocratic limits on the excesses of capitalism. Uh, Very Elizabeth Warren of him. (laughs) So Wiseman, on the other hand, wanted an absolutely controlled economy uh, without or at least with incredibly limited international capital speculation. And he wanted to see immigration restricted only to those who believed in the Zionist character of the future state of Israel. Uh, And we still see that in the state of Israel in their right of return laws. So Wiseman's view won out and Brian Dice went on to become the first Jew nominated to the Supreme Court. Uh, where he went on to help secure the ascendance of labor under FDR. Uh, but all of that's a story for another podcast. Interesting. He didn't include like the displacement and, you know, murder of indigenous people either with Brandis's kind of American mirror vision for it, right? I think that, that goes without saying when you yeah. say the American <laughs> ideal. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, he's a, a fascinating alternative ideal for what Israel was supposed to become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's weird because, like, I don't know, it seems like there's probably, I mean, the immigration is one thing, but with the, I mean, uncontrolled markets, I mean, I think maybe, maybe I just don't know enough about the economy of Israel, but I mean, as I understand, they're looked at as some kind of like 
liberal free marketeer kind of within that whole system, right? So there's kind of mixes of both visions, isn't there? Yeah, that free market development wasn't really until the neoliberal turn of the late 70s and 80s. Before mm -hmm. that, Israel was actually an incredibly controlled economy. Okay. I mean, we, we shudder to call them socialist, uh, but it, it really was a planned economy um, through the beginning era, through probably uninterrupted through the 1970s. Mm. Mm. With a strain of exclusionary nationalism, huh? Not the kind of socialism that we want. Yeah, if we if we want to call them socialists at all, it comes with incredibly large caveats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't think the American ideal is unrestricted immigration anymore, is it? If it ever really was, no, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Depends on when we need cheap labor and where. Yeah. Okay, so um, the Balfour Declaration was motivated by imperial self-interest. Arthur Balfour, who was the foreign secretary, sent his letter promising an Arab country to Zionist settlers to Lord Rothschild. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. This meant that the Palestinian Arabs, Christians and Muslims, despite making up 93% of the population, were relegated to the status of existing non-Jewish communities and their civil rights did not include being consulted about the land being given away from under their own feet. So in no way trying to defend Britain, but just trying to get into their mindset. It seems like the British approach to this rampant land speculation was to just let the market sort itself out. And it had that sort of brutal free market ideology. So it's not that they were in enforcing this speculation, but they had no interest in stopping the rampant speculation either for the betterment no and in reality i mean the zionists as they were europeans would be much better first in land speculation and investment than the arab people that were there yeah so they could take advantage of this free market ideology yeah so britain was awarded control over palestine by the league of nations in 1922 the balfour declaration was incorporated into the mandate the british appointed herbert samuel as the first high commissioner he was a senior liberal politician former Home Secretary, Jewish, and perhaps most importantly, a Zionist. The two were not and are not interchangeable. He had also recently acted as an advisor to the Zionist movement. Samuel claimed his, his ancestors had dwelt in this very land for a thousand years, and who now, after another two thousand years, were charged with a special duty of preparing for the return that had been longed for all that time. Samuel saw the, the appointment as a high privilege and wrote that the British government not only knew of my Zionist sympathies, but had appointed him largely because of them. So that goes to your point, Levi. I mean, Britain just, you know, they had, they just wanted this as, they just wanted to see these, these you know, effectively colonize this country and, and, and establish these settler communities. Also, yeah. oh, go ahead, Levi, sorry. No, and just to take a counterintuitive statement, I mean, how many Arab British polit politicians did they have to choose from for that position? Yeah. None. <laughs> there might be one now, <laughs> maybe, but I, even that's questionable. Now, and here, I just want to reiterate another point that I've made on this podcast before that we've probably all made in various forms. You know, just Steve, just because you mentioned the League of Nations, we have to remember that the League of Nations was kind of a Woodrow Wilson envisioned project, right? Like he kind of started it. The U.S. ultimately was not part of the 
United or the League of Nations because of political maneuvering and I think Republican um, opposition following Wilson's presidency. But you know, it was still it was still influenced by his kind of visions and like he had his fourteen points doctrine that he put out, which references self determination. But again, as we see here, as we saw in Vietnam and all over the you know the colonized world, the global South, those concepts of self-determination only apply in certain contexts and for certain people. Um, and I just think that, you know, the League of Nations in this scenario, and then you can look at how the United Nations down the line still service as imperial vehicles because of their origins and because of how they're dominated by the imperial powers <laughs> at the end of the day. I think you can look at something like the United Nations and say, hey, look, there's a lot of good in the charter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with the way relations exist, things play out a certain way because of the power structures here. And I just want to make the point that the League of Nations is kind of in that same lineage. Yeah. And to sort of take that a little bit further, it makes using concepts and proclamations of organizations like the League of Nations in the United Nations so complicated uh, because you and I, I'm sure I've heard people in our organizations want to talk about how if only the United Nations were followed or if only the United Nations would vote or speak this way, things would change. And there's really two responses to that. It's, you know, well, they didn't right. uh, is the easiest response. Or the second being, even if they did, why would it matter? Because their legitimacy is so fraught in the first place. So it's one of those sort of uh, a stop block is right twice a day. And that we can state when the United Nations does something good and in their long history, they've done a lot of great things and pronunciations, uh, usually on behalf of African members and third world states. But we have to be kind of careful at how much weight we give them, even when they're right, that they are legitimately an anti-democratic organization when it comes down to it. Yeah. And also you can look at like the resolutions that we vote on and the things that we stand behind and everything like that. But when the U.S., Britain and France sit on the uh, Security Council, it really doesn't fucking matter because there's no there's no force behind any of those things. Right. So when the U.N. votes to basically stop promoting like neo-Nazi propaganda and shit like that, the U.S. votes against it. And then the U.S. says, well, you know, we'll, we can we sit on the Security Council. So nothing you say really matters anyway. I mean, I don't know what use this is in its current iteration anyway. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to go on a huge tangent on the UN here, but I, I, I don't think either. we're in agreement that it's a, it's a fraught organization. Yeah. Sahar Hunaidi noted that Samuel's role was to make pacifying statements about Zionism and British intentions, but instead he went ahead and firmly laid down the foundations of a fully-fledged Jewish state. He introduced ordinances, ordinances vital to the Zionists, allowing Jew, Jewish immigration, facilitating land transfers, and privileging the settlers. He recognized Hebrew as an official language and allowed the Zionist settlement to operate as a state within a state, even establishing their own militia known as the Haganah. And the British treated the Zionist Jewish agency as the government in waiting. So a, a word on that Jewish agency. So that Jewish agency... The Histradot, as it was known, was the government in waiting. It was a sort of all-encompassing democratic Jewish union within the mandate. Uh, early on, it collected dues from its voluntary members to found a bank, which it then in turn used to invest in factories, which its members would work. 
In addition to the militia, the Histradot also constructed hospitals, printed magazines and newspapers, built and operated primary schools, uh, and eventually established the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 1918. And these were all available at a nominal cost or were just completely free to members. Uh, and of course, Arabs need not apply. A rival organization didn't really exist at the same scale within Arab populations, which meant that Jewish laborers with membership in the History Dot, which at some point was around 80% of Jewish laborers, uh, could work for the same or even lower wages than an Arab contemporary, but still have all of these social services behind them just because of their membership. Uh, this is also the agency where so, uh, numerous so-called socialist parties united as the Mape party. And this is where Ben-Gurion, Sharat, and other founders, quote-unquote, cut their teeth. Uh, it's also worth noting, uh, and this is the positive, that the communist party within the Histradot uh, actually refused to join the Mape party and fiercely and continually advocated for Arab inclusion and support within the Histradot. And this is sort of the counter-history. That could you imagine if Arab individuals were allowed to join this social organization, it would have actually been a democratically created state. Uh, and I, I don't want to say that too positively because it still would have been a European style state with all of its flaws, but it certainly wouldn't have been an explicitly Arab need not apply organization. Yeah, something you said in there, because we're talking about different economic structures being set up and laborers being involved. And I've been listening to a little bit of Gerald Horn lately, right? He's a great American historian. And, you know, one of, I think, his core ideas when it comes to like colonialism is that it requires some kind of like class co collaborationism, right? Like when it, when it comes to exclusionary along racial lines, um, colonial projects, right? Which inherently they are. But just to try to bring a class element into this a little bit, I don't know, like something like this kind of speaks to me as evidence of kind of like one of his key arguments is, especially like with respect to as he looks at like America, is that, you know, there are working class Zionists collaborating with who would be, you know, the eventual business owners and bourgeois of Israel um, in this scenario. Right. So just goes to this point where. I guess we can't just look at class entirely in the world of imperialism. Class is obviously a core linchpin function, but there are other factors that we have to look at. Yeah. And I mean, it feels sort of heterodox, but I mean, thinkers much greater than you or I, or even greater than Gerald Horn, as great as he is, like W.E.B. Du Bois made very similar arguments that it's mm -hmm. impossible to just look at class and understand the yep. intricacies of socialist movements or working class movements um so yeah it, it's definitely more complicated than just class and i don't know that marx would disagree with a concept like that it's just that class was such a non-concept at his era that he may be i mean I'm, I'm not here to criticize what was being written but he may have overemphasized class as a singular denomination being a german man living in england he just didn't have the perspective to think of other aspects that would be so monumental no that was just top of mind because i was listening to it today so i wanted to bring it up because it's just to emphasize that we need to view this as a colonial project and this is like an anti-colonial thinker within the u.s that i think we should all at least grapple with i have a a decent gerald horn story but remind me later yeah we'll save it okay so following as we just went over with with samuel's role in in um 
effectively making you know the Jewish government in waiting. The Palestinians, on the other hand, found themselves with no voice or say in the government of their country. Ernst Richmond, an English official, wrote that the Palestinians were starting to regard the government as Jewish camouflaged as English. They will not accept Jewish rule. We deny them all representative institutions which they enjoyed under the Turks. The country is in a ferment. So the history of Palestinian hostility to Zionism dates back to before the First World War. In 1882, there had been 24,000 Jews in Palestine. By 1914, there were 85,000. The Jewish settlements had also increased from 5 to 47 during that time, and Jewish landholding increased from 25,000 acres to 420,000. The land taken was purchased from absentee landlords and the existing Palestinian tenants who in many cases had, had farmed the land for generations, were evicted to make room for European settlers. The Zionist purchase of land in the plain of Esdralon alone evicted 8,000 Palestinians and led to the destruction of 22 villages. No one was there. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> these, yeah. Again, but following it, what we've run into many times with these, you know, colonial projects, right? Yeah. Even more vile is when they say they voluntarily left. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> I voluntarily left the only source of sustenance that my family has been on for generations and generations. Okay. <laughs> is, it, is it really voluntary if you're, yeah. uh, if you know that people with guns and machetes are coming after you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I technically, I guess they didn't speak to them, so it is voluntary, right? The first recorded violence took place in 1886 when Palestinians attacked the Zionist settlement at Peta Tikva, inflicting considerable damage and killing one Jewish settler. The Palestinians felt alienated from the land they had cultivated for centuries. Many similar clashes occurred in the years before the Balfour Declaration. Once Palestine was under British rule, the Palestinian hostility to Zionist settlements extended to resentment of the British and how they reneged on the promises of self-governance made under the Hussein McMahon correspondence. The Palestinians believed that self-governance government was out of the question until there was a, a Zionist majority. You know, basically they, they would have no say and it would be the only self-government would be a Zionist one. Yes, that sort of idea that we'll have elections in Vietnam as soon as we're sure that our side is going to win. So Balfour noted in a letter to Lloyd George, in the case of Palestine, we deliberately and rightly declined to accept the principle of self-determination. After all, if the present inhabitants were consulted, they would unquestionably give an anti-Jewish verdict. And I, I wrote here, like, just as a side note, seems very similar to modern sentiment of anti-Zionism equating to anti-Semitism. Yeah, this really reminds me of, you know, the, the South African question, you know, why should we let this majority population vote? They're clearly going to elect a black majority government. Like, well, yeah. why, okay, why don't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of, like, any U.S. intervention and occupation in history um, where they're, you know, at the point where elections were actually allowed, it was orchestrated to achieve the result that was desired. Right. What is it? It's a fucking immortal technique. The only candidate that is acceptable is if America's candidate is electable or something like that, you know? Good. Yep. So this policy by Balfour was never made public for fear of Palestinian anger. The first serious instances of violence following the mandate, occurred in April 1920 and May 1921. The first saw rioting that left five Jews and four Palestinians dead. The British Commission of Inquiry, 
listed as the causes of unrest in the country, British promises to Arabs during the war, the conflict between these promises and the Balfour Declaration, fear of Jewish domination, Zionist aggressiveness, and foreign propaganda. So, I mean, you've got this British Commission of Inquiry, and they can see what the problem is, right? They they know that <laughs> they made everything they've done is contradictory, but um, it doesn't really matter because their interests are still, you know, they have to they have to make sure their interests are served. So, May nineteen twenty one saw a more serious incident after clashes between Zionists and communists. All Jews in Jaffa on May Day. This led to attacks on settlers that spread to other towns and were only defused by police after 47 Jews and 48 Arabs were killed. Now, at, at this point, you know, Newsinger goes into questions of why a full stage or a full scale Palestinian rebellion never came about. And uh, he reasons um, that the ferocity of the Palestinian hostility certainly took the British by surprise and led them to pulling back from their Zionist commitment. Even High Commissioner Herbert Samuel as noted earlier, earlier a Zionist, was harshly criticized by the Zionist leadership for showing too much concern for Arab sensibilities. However, this seeming reversal in policy led to the Palestinian notables, the rural and urban upper class, to believe that the British were susceptible to pressure and that a resort to violence may be unnecessary. However, possibly more important is the fact that in the 1920s, the Zionist project was close to failing altogether because European Jews were simply not emigrating to Palestine. I think this gets to a, a, a core concern of the British government was less on the Zionist movement, although I'm sure that was their sympathy. It was more on its benefit to the crown, that if they believed that the Arab movement was going to be more beneficial, then they would have supported the Arab independence movement. Yeah. So that's where you get that sort of contradiction. I think that's how that's solved. Yeah, I think I noted earlier that, you know, they, they just saw this as an extension of their imperial interests. By, by placing Europeans into a, into a colony effectively, right? I mean, especially at this point, because as you said, Steve, they've already pissed off the Palestinian people, right? So they made the initial bet. Maybe at this point, it looks like, oh, this might not pay off or it might not go the way we want it to go kind of more or less organically. Of course, that's, that's bullshit anyway, because they've got guns on the ground. But now... They need to make sure it works because the Palestinians are pissed off at them and they're not going to tolerate them there, you know, with or without the Jewish people there. Right. Right. Yeah. There's some sort of notion that the British want these colonial settlers, Zionists, to behave like good British colonists. Mm -hmm. They want them to be quiet. They want them to know that the British crown is on their side. Uh, and as we'll see, they are a pain in their ass and the British are not OK with that. Yeah. So this faltering immigration somewhat blunted the Palestinian hostility and led many supporters of Zionism to believe that the Zionist settlement would not become strong enough to take over the entire country. In 1926, a serious economic crisis hit the settlement, which saw a net loss of 2,000 Zionists. This situation did not last as the rise of extreme anti-Semitism in Europe, and in particular in Nazi Germany, reignited the Zionist desire to settle in Palestine. The 1920s ended with further violence in August 1929. An incident was deliberately provoked by the revisionist wing of the Zionist movement. The fascist sympathizers of Vladimir Jabotinsky, his supporters used a dispute concerning the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to begin an aggressive demonstration. The result was a week of violence, which saw considerable damage and in inflicted on the 
Yeshuv, six settlements were destroyed, and 133 Jews were killed. Officially, 117 Palestinians were also killed, but the real figure is probably higher, as many of those killed and injured were not brought to hospital. So very similar to many uh, clashes we've gone over in British colonial history. Yeah, and to just tie this back to, your, to the point made earlier about British sympathies, uh, Samuel, though a Zionist, ended up throwing Jabotinsky in jail uh, while he installed Haj Mohammed Amin al-Husseini, uh, the perceived head of the Palestinian people, as Mufted of Jerusalem. Uh, so while it's clear that the British held sympathies with the European sensibilities of the Zionists, uh, Samuel seems to have viewed his primary directive as keeping the peace for the crown. At times, that meant he would side with the Arab demands, uh, something the Palestinians recognized, even if they didn't, how you might say, like they, know, they didn't know how to push this advantage, uh, whereas the Zionists, in a literal sense, spoke the same language as the British and were very capable of pushing their advantages. The Palestinian casualties were mainly inflicted by British police and troops. The British were angered by the anti-British character to the violence, and many of the violent clashes occurred in purely Arab towns, such as Nablus, Jenin, Accra, and Gaza. So that's kind of the end of, of this part, closing out the 20s, and we'll get into some of what Levi just said and, and the British activity in Palestine in the 30s on the next part. Yeah, I mean, for me, it really just kind of drives home the point, again, that we're trying to make. And as I mentioned earlier, that this is an imperial-sponsored project for reasons and interests that exist outside of that region. I mean, obviously, they're tied into the specific conditions, which I don't want to diminish that Jews are facing in Europe. And I don't want to diminish that, like, you know, especially when you talk about the rise of Nazi Germany. If you're a Jewish person in that context, I mean, I want to try to sympathize as much as I can to say, like, if you're getting kind of like the propaganda to say, look, you know, maybe you don't know the details that are going on in the ground and things like that. And you're like, oh, like, I need to get the hell out of here. So I try to sympathize with that, which is why I think it's important to look at, you know, this is an imperial project to say that, like, it obscures a lot of the things that are going on in the ground with real people in the interests of a much broader powers. Yeah, I mean, I read that quote by Newsinger that, you know, it was a child of Western imperialism, this whole, the, the whole project, for, at least in the eyes of the British. Like you said, I mean, you know, if you were Jewish and, as, as, you know, in Germany or Hungary or anywhere else where, you know, there was extreme anti-Semitism, the other factor is, to, again, to not diminish their, their plight was that, you know, no one else wanted them, right? The British turned them away. The French, I, I think the French accepted more than anyone else, but the U.S. turned you know, Jews that were trying to, to get out of Europe away. So I, I, I assume a lot of people just thought there was nowhere else to go. Yeah, I, I think the main criticism we're trying to make, and for anyone that wants to accuse us of being pro-Nazi, just remember, uh, we're on the left. We're the people <laughs> the Nazis also hated, me especially, but they weren't happy with any of the three of us. The point is that the Zionist project didn't have to be exclusionary. It didn't mm -hmm. have to be anti-Arab as well as pro-Zionist. That the way it was articulated was a means of separating the Jewish people from the Arab people that were there. I mean, we don't have the proverbial crystal ball to understand how things might have gone, but there's no reason that these people couldn't have at least made efforts to get along. I mean, there was a communist party that refused 
to play ball with the British Imperial Project and wanted to create a cross-class solidarity movement with the Palestinian people. But obviously that's not what ended up happening. Yeah, and I guess to just abstract it out a further level, it's just like we have to remember we're living in a world where capitalism still dominates and it dominated at this time. And capitalism really grew up in Europe first and foremost, and it was predicated upon racism and white supremacy as a pillar of that ideology, as a, you know, a superstructure grown up out of the base, which just continues to inform all the decisions that are made in an imperial and capitalist context, right? So we're analyzing what happened here more than anything. Right. And people like Ben Gurion understood the imperial project just as well as his British overseers did. And he was just more savvy at being able to manipulate that project than his mm -hmm. Palestinian cohort. 100%. And I mean, a, to that point about racialized systems, a probably more acceptable cohort to sit in the room with. Like you said, they literally the same language so yeah at best i think the palestinian leaders would have been versed in turkish mm -hmm. uh, because that would have been their former overseers i don't know that they were conversant in english i mean i i'm willing to be wrong on that but i know that individual leaders of the zionist movement knew english quite well or at least mm -hmm. knew german and french no it makes sense yeah you guys got anything else on this not for me the next part sucks <laughs> It all sucks, but <laughs> yeah. British look as bad as they always do in the next part. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh it's all miserable. And that's why we do it, I guess, right? Yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> but um no, this is good, man. Um so this will be part two A. We'll come back with part two B. I guess when I get to mine, I'm gonna have to keep with the trend and make a two part section on the US Empire in Israel. So thanks for that. Um, just in, I guess, just in some local things in terms of activities, if you're around the Pittsburgh area, uh, Pittsburgh BDS is going to be hosting a viewing of the movie Boycott. Uh, it's a documentary film that is kind of, I guess the genesis of its creation is around a lot of the anti BDS, which is boycott divestment sanctions legislation that is cropping up around the country right now. The kind of view that the film posits is that while it's explicitly targeted at this specific movement on the basis that it's like anti-semitic which i guess you know we're trying to do our part here in debunking but you know if you can take away boycotts in a situation like this you can take away boycotts which is a powerful tool in people's movements in a lot of other cases as well so i guess if you're concerned with you know racial justice equity and your remaining tools in the arsenal within this hellscape context this could be an important orientation to that. So I'll post some stuff on the Instagram about it. But if you're in the area or close to it, it would be certainly great to have you come out and look at it. And if you're not in the area, go check it out on your own. Hopefully, maybe there's a showing around you. So again, just wanted to, again, bring some kind of real life stuff that's going on um, to the topic that we're talking about now. But other than that, thanks for listening as always. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Adios, paisanos.